Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is where I become a Pixar completist as I finally watch the Cars movies and I am happy to be joined by Pixar correspondent Joe Morgan to discuss the Cars movies. Joe, thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Josh. Yeah, so I had been putting this off for some time now. It's funny, Joe, I... I feel like people derisively talk about the Cars movies. That's just their tone whenever they do it. And I, for whatever reason, I just was like kind of dreading it. I just, because of the way I've always heard people talk about them. And I just figured, oh, these are going to be bad. It's going to be a slog. It's just going to be so much. And I, I mean, I, I've just like gone through other uh, things where like I'm just like watching a ton of Bond movies or I'm watching something else. It's like, do I really want to immerse? Like I watched a lot of the Piers Brosnan Bond movies, which are very, not that great. And I'm like, do I really want to like, right after I do that, like dive into like three not good movies. But I was <laughs> like, if I'm, if I'm never going to do this, it needs to be now. Cause there's other stuff I want to cover in December. And I, I, I'll straight up say it. Like I actually thought these movies were like fairly entertaining for the most part. And I'm not really sure exactly I don't know. I, I only read so much into the criticism, but I'm kind of curious as someone that's more uh, obviously has a longer history with these movies than I do and uh, can probably take a step back and uh, have opinions on all Pixar movies at once. Uh, where, what do you think when you just think of the Cars movies? I mean, it seems like they, again, they're very divisive and despite making a lot of money. And before I, I, we actually go in and talk about each one individually and actually get into the specifics, how do you feel about them when you just think about them in the context of the entire Pixar filmography? Uh, I know that's a, I know, I, I'm sorry. I know that's a loaded question, but I'm, I'm curious to get your big picture take because I just think these movies kind of hold a unique and interesting place within the greater Pixar world. Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of the Cars movies. It's not that I think that they're necessarily bad movies. I think mm-hmm. it's more... Um, when you hold them up against some of Pixar's best, they obviously just pale in comparison, but that's not really fair. You can hold up a lot of good movies against Pixar's best and they're going to pale in comparison. And this too, especially people who are deep seated fans of Pixar and Disney in general, it's hard not to see the machinery around cars. Like for example, the original cars movie with or like, regardless of its merits, does it really deserve to be one of only two, uh, Pixar trilogies up until Toy Story 4 last year. No, it didn't. And that's not to necessarily knock it, because, I mean, I think they're perfectly fine, and we'll get more into that. But, uh, yeah, I just think whenever there was a new Cars sequel announced, there was always the um, the wailing and the gnashing of teeth of, why isn't there an Incredible sequel? And we finally got that. And you well, know, Brad Bird was busy doing other stuff. That, that's, what, that's also <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and just... Uh, these movies, they're perfectly, they're perfectly fine movies. They're mostly, you know, when it comes to them, they try to go for that same Pixar, like heartwarming, uh, heartwarming tear jerking moments. And you can kind of see the machinery of it a bit more where it's not as effective. And you know what? Like no one bats a thousand. So, um, yeah, all in all, they're fine movies and they're obviously beloved by a certain segment of the population. Well, yeah, I mean, it's that, that you made the point about like, you know, does, should this really be the other trilogy? I think is interesting. I, I should have said it at the start, uh, both cars and cars two were directed and co-written by John Lasseter. Uh, he wasn't the original director on the first one initially. It was someone named uh, Durant who uh, ended up uh, tragically passing away during the production of Cars. But uh, John Lasseter took over as the sole director on that after that point and then directed Cars 2, and he's the chief creative officer of Pixar for a while. So I, he obviously had a lot of say probably in what ultimately got made there. So like, I guess my thought when I was watching it was like, did these movies get made? But another point I saw made in a couple of different reviews that I read was that like Pixar in general will tell you that we don't make movies with profit being the first you know goal in mind. It's obviously you want to make something that's like very creatively fulfilling. And so I was thinking like that three of these movies got made. Do we think they got made more because they actually made a lot of money in spite of tepid reviews, or because John Lasseter just like really likes Cars? And that's the hard question because like for anybody who follows like Pixar and stuff like. The first Cars especially was extremely a passion project of John Lasseter's. I mean, after he finished making Toy Story 2, he very famously went on an RV trip with his family down Route 66, which... I did not know know that part of the story, actually. Yeah, and uh, it partly inspired the uh, the ultimate making of Cars. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, Joe Ramps, Joe Ramps is... Toe Mater is based off of, like, a bit character Joe Ramps used to do, like, at company functions and stuff. So it's... 
one of those things where it's something that was deeply personal to Laster. So you could see him kind of maybe looking past his flaws and wanting to spend more time with the characters. And then you see the merchandising side where, you know, I think cars might be one of the five highest grossing, like merchandising brands like ever. Um, I hadn't even thought of that because I'd seen some different critics in their reviews like make notes about how, oh, yeah, this hit a nostalgia point for me because I played with my Hot Wheels and stuff when I was a kid and things like that. I didn't even think about the fact that they probably could like make way more money selling like car stuff, maybe even more so than just like, you know, selling Nemo and Dory stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and there's that connection, too, I think, too. It's like where, you know, you have the parents who grew up with like Matchbox Matchbox cars and Hot Wheels and now their kids and grandkids have cars, which the only difference is the windshields that buys. So, I mean, you know, there you go. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely one of those, you know, when you look at Pixar's lore and you look at their history, there's the famous lunch where the original brain trust got together after Toy Story and they scribbled down their famous ideas about, like, um, what if monsters in your closet were punching the clock at a daily job? Or what if there was a compactor robot who was left behind on earth you know and it was like all these high concept uh, a rat who wants to be like a five-star chef and then you get hey it's like you know a talking car movie and uh not to get too far off on a tangent but whenever you ask anybody at pixar how the cars universe works and stuff they're just kind of there's like a hand wave more than a um, actual explanation for where these cars come from and yada yada etc so it's just sort of one of those things where um it sort of is what it is, and there isn't, like, those layers of thought that you're accustomed to. Right. I saw, I saw one reviewer make the point, if there are no people in this world, why are there handles on the doors? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing they, that just isn't thought about, and I think people find that very frustrating when you look at some of – like, you know, you look at a movie like Up that's just so thoughtful and so creative and just such a specific concept, and then you like – Again, you you look at the cars universe and there's handles on the doors and you're like, but, what's going on there? What's interesting though is it's not like they it's not like they don't put thought into the movie. I don't, there's, there's probably not as much. I think it's I think we both agree there's definitely not as much there there to these movies mm-hmm. and there's not going to be is especially in the first one there's not as much of a plot as maybe a lot of other Pixar movies have, but they have their own fun little details too. Which I did, which I, which I kind of found really funny. Uh, even like I, I sent Joe a picture of uh, one of these race cars that had that was sponsored by uh, HTB Hostile Takeover Bank and things like that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like they have like funny little asides in here. It's not like they, it's not like they didn't put thought and detail into it. But at the same time, uh, I guess they, you know, they thought they could get away without having to like you know flesh out every single aspect of how this universe worked. Which I mean. Fair enough. I don't think little kids are going to get hung up on that, but you know, adults see these movies too. And yeah, maybe in in 2020, I'm going to notice more than if I just watched this in 2006. But I would say I didn't get too hung up on it myself, though every now and then I did think a little bit about how exactly does this world work. And yeah, if if, if they want to, you know, maybe not color in those color within those lines or whatever the right term would be, or you know, flesh out every little detail then yeah we'll, we'll make note of it but at the same time i think the movies can uh, maybe still uh, hang on their own merits the other interesting thing about it being a uh, about it about it being a trilogy was that like i had assumed that you know i i feel like i just heard people say like way more negative things about cars 3 probably more so because after cars 2 they're like why do we need another why do we need another cars but i just assumed the way i'd heard people talk about it that like 3 was the worst i did not realize that like two was just very poorly received by critics and whereas three's reviews are actually comparable to one and i was i was just actually kind of shocked by that because i just heard such like negative things about the third one and it's kind of crazy that a third one got made after the pixar who does pride itself on its quality had such a bad experience probably that's probably the worst reviewed pixar movie am i wrong cars 2 yeah cars 2 was the first uh, rotten uh pixar movie on rotten tomatoes mm. ever Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe they, maybe they were prideful enough to like want to go out on a high note when like, even though like John Lasseter wasn't as involved in the third run, they were just like, no, we don't want to have that. Like we, we want to go out on a higher note if we're going to like be in this universe and not like let it go out. And I don't know, but like, or it was probably just the money. I mean, I, and I guess they, that that's another way they can like make a lot more money, I suppose. And they, uh, and they, I, I, I don't know this. I mean, we are both uh, probably beyond, uh, Hot Wheels, you know, car toy age at that point, but they did bring in a whole lot of, uh, they brought in a whole fleet of new looking cars for the third one, which now that I think about it, and after you made the comment about the merchandising earlier, maybe that's not such a coincidence. 
<laughs> like or, or yeah, these cars that were on steroids or whatever they were. Yeah, I, I'll say like I feel like if Cars Two hadn't come out or it didn't exist, and Cars Three had been Cars Two, I think that people look much more favorably on this enterprise because Cars Three really does go well hand in hand with the original Cars, and it feels more like a direct sequel, I guess. Whereas Cars Two is just sort of like Pixar wanted to make a, a James Bond movie, movie and then, <laughs> yeah. And then decided to set it in the world of cars because uh, they were drunk with power at that point. I don't know, but yeah, because like uh, as I re- as I revisited these movies recently, I you know watched Cars one. You know, well, we can get into um, our specific reactions to them in a bit here, but um, I watched Cars one, enjoyed it. Cars two, I was like, oh my gosh, I still can't believe this movie got made. And then. And then the Cars three, I was like, oh yeah, like I'm I'm seeing like the thematic uh, through line here, like okay, you know, and um, yeah. So all in all, yeah, I think Cars three because I remember even I when Cars three was announced, I was just so, sort of like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> you guys are going to make another Cars movie seriously? And then and at that point, the second Incredible still like it might have been announced at that point, but like mm-hmm. it, it had probably been announced by the time Cars three came out. But when they announced cars three was being made they probably hadn't announced incredibles 2 yet like just based on the timeline incredibles 2 came out a year later after cars 3 mm. so it's like they probably did announce cars 3 before they had announced in incredibles 2 which i can see why that would have rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way yeah exactly it was just one of those things where i was like wow all right and then when you actually see it sit down and watch it you know like um you know, again, it's not among Pixar's best, but you watch it and you're like, okay, like the things that Pixar does well, you see more of it in Cars 3 than you did in Cars 2, certainly. Interesting. Well, I'm curious to get your thoughts on Cars 2 then. Because uh, I, don't, I don't actually mean, I can kind of see for the argument for why it's the worst, but I don't know if I like I felt as strongly as a lot of those critics did. But we'll start with Cars, which again, came out in 2006, uh, directed by John Lasseter, written by... Uh, a whole host of people, as a lot of these movies sometimes are, including Dan Fogelman and uh, the aforementioned Joe Ranth. It was the obviously the introduction to this world with like talking cars. I didn't even know it was about race cars actually before I started watching these movies. I just knew that cars talked. <laughs> that was all I knew was that cars talked. And there's there was some reason three of the movies. That's all I knew. Uh, but these these are actually race cars. Our uh, our, our main character is a uh, rookie race car named uh, I almost said race car driver. <laughs> uh, a rookie just a race car a rookie race car named lightning mcqueen voiced by owen wilson he is in a race to win the piston cup which is the you know the main season-long trophy in this world of race cars and uh competing against a couple other cars including a uh, strip weathers who is a kind of aging guy drives for a team uh tonoko no it was uh uh, Dynaco. Dynaco, sorry. Uh, yeah, he's uh, racing against an older guy named Strip the King Weathers, who races for Team Dynaco, a team that White McQueen wants to drive for because he is working, he, he is uh, sponsored by Rusty's, a bumper ointment company, which is just a fun term to say. <laughs> and uh, he's, he thinks he can get something a little flashier than that. There's another co- competitor named Chick Hicks, and uh, Lightning ends up, he ends up in a tie at the, his first race of the movie, and they have to have a tiebreaker race a week later, and they have to drive out to California. They're somewhere in the middle of the country for this first race. And on the drive out there, he is his big tractor trailer that transports him everywhere f- falls asleep because cars take naps. Actually, <laughs> uh, they, they, they require their rest, uh, just like humans do. And ends up going over a bump that cause, causes Lightning McQueen to fall out. And he tries to catch back up to his tractor trailer. And when he ends up just not being able to find him, he gets off road and goes into this small town called Radiator Springs. It's very run down. And in, in, in part of his mad chase, he ends up uh, tearing up the, basically the one road that comprises the town. And the next day he's in court for uh, just destruction of property i guess i don't know and they, they <laughs> kick him out of town but a uh a lawyer named sally but the lawyer is a car because cars have jobs like being lawyers uh says you need to keep him around so he can fix this street he's very upset because he has to get to his big race but uh lo and behold he comes to care about this town and that is the movie and i i say it that way because i think it is interesting joe that i think uh out of all the pixar movies to this point i think uh what kind of stands apart 
about cars and the fact that is it, it is about talking cars is that I feel like there's less of a plot to this movie than just about any other Pixar movie that had been made to that point and maybe has been made since. Uh, it's kind of interesting that that was the choice that uh, John Lasseter wanted to make, but I, in a way it's kind of like it's, it's his ode to this part of the country, and I think that's what he wants to focus on. Is that something that kind of stands out to you as you revisit it, having obviously probably watched a lot of other, almost every other Pixar movie since the last time you watched the Cars movie, if I had to guess? Just this, the just the storytelling in this movie really just feels very unique. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a movie that slows down, and I think when you and I texted about Cars earlier in the week, I I said to you, I was like, I feel like this movie would be much better received if it were 20 minutes shorter, because this movie has a runtime of two hours and six minutes, which is a long movie that for where not a ton happens. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, it's just one of those things where, again, this is based off of a very uh, nice fa- – this is like based off of a very great vacation that John Lester had with his family. <laughs> and I think part of it is, you know, he brought a certain perspective of it that – you know, the world certainly feels lived in. Um, there's great specificity to Radiator Springs, especially. I mean, it's a land at Disneyland now that's very popular, very well visited. Oh, I, I did not know that, uh, actually. Yeah, there's a Cars Land at Disney's California Adventure that um, is extremely popular, much more popular than the movies are, um, actually. So, like, they definitely nailed specificity and feeling of place. There's just, yeah, like you said, there's just not a ton that goes on. And I think this is sort of indicative of this movie and the franchise as a whole, like these movie, the cars movies do a great job of nailing, like feeling like how an environment feels. Uh, but, uh, the story is lacking in that sense, you know, like you feel like you're coming to a place and you just don't really, um, not a ton happens, um, in this place. And Um, I don't want to say like, that's inherently a bad thing. You can have a movie that's more of a hangout. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti hangout movie, which is in a way mm-hmm. kind of what it is. It's not necessarily a guy. It's a guy learning to make friends as opposed to just a group of friends hanging out, which is more what I think of when I think of a hangout movie. But it's just a, mm-hmm. a, 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 it's about a, it's about a place and and longing for a time. It's uh, it's an mm-hmm. ode to a different time before interstates, basically when like towns like that off of Route sixty six you know, might be booming and what that was kind of like, and people can reminisce about the fifties because I guess you know uh, that's kind of what even Lightning McQueen does when he's first kind of uh, reacquainting himself with Doc, who's kind of the old car in town, voiced by Paul Newman, who he comes to learn uh, was a race car was a I should say was a race car driver himself once he was a ra- <laughs> I mean, but I but it, I realized it wasn't inaccurate it, it would have been inaccurate to say he was a race car once because he's not <laughs> He's still alive at this point, so I don't even know what to say. He he once com- they he was They're a car. Ca- he, he was a car that once competitively raced, <laughs> and <laughs> um, and so in and won the Piston Cup in fifty one, fifty two, fifty three, fifty four in that range three different times. So it's like a, it's very clearly harkening back to the fifties. And look, if you can like entertain little kids with like cool driving scenes, and hell, I was actually entertained by some of the driving scenes. Some of that stuff oh, yeah. does look pretty cool. If you can do that, and hey transport some old boomers back to the good old days then uh good on you guys i uh and i it, it does that and i it's just i don't think the ceiling for a movie that is only aiming to do that is as high as like you said earlier what a lot of top flight pixar does seek out to do that doesn't mean it doesn't succeed on its own merits it's just those merits maybe aren't quite you know a toy story in it or an inside out or an incredibles Mm-hmm. You nodded when I said I did like watching the racing. Do you do you at least feel like this movie, even if it's lacking in storytelling, still you know succeeds as well as most other movie Pixar movies do with its animation? Because it's kind of cool seeing them recreate that part of the country. Uh, I I think the opening scene of the movie is very successful. They oh, you mean at the, you mean lot. at the racetrack? You mean? Yeah, the racetrack yeah. at the opening race. I think they get a lot of good gags in. I think the action's really cool. Um, they kind of do a great job of showing you like a NASCAR race and filming it and framing it in ways that you can in animation, you know, and like they have a bunch of great references, like Lightning McQueen goes airborne and sticks the tongue out like Jordan, you know, like, you know, you know, you, uh, we, really we, kinda... you know what I got a real kick out of actually, cause I mentioned earlier the uh-huh. small jokes. I got a kick out of the, like I I really I'm glad you brought that went back to that because I wasn't I, I just kind of skipped over and I wasn't going to go back to that specifically but I like how they actually kind of created a fun atmosphere of like and drew parallels to like real sporting 
ter- sports terminology and things you might hear at a sporting event, not only in just like a, a NASCAR race, but in treating these cars like actual athletes with personalities. Because yeah. because at one point you hear one of the cars yell, "Don't take me out, coach! I can still race." Which I that, that yeah. just, I, I got a huge kick out of that. Yeah, it's it's really yeah it's really a triumph because. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about with these movies too is just um, they're so laden with exposition scenes, hmm. and I think Car, the original Cars, their exposition scene doesn't feel like I'm doing my homework or I'm eating my vegetables in it. I think they do a really good job because they dump a ton on you in that opening scene, you know, because you're basically watching a TV broadcast. But at least the you're doing it in the context do- of like an entertaining race, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like they do a good job of framing it and everything. And like, um, you get like the action bits and then you have the excitement of the broadcast and you're watching the race. So I think it's really successful and they do a great job with it and it is phenomenally done. Yeah, and, and, and like, we talk, just from the references and everything. Yeah. And we talk a lot about how a lot of these movies, like we always ask the question, are they for, or what age group is this for? And I feel mm-hmm. like that's something that this movie has going forward and that like it's exposition is there, but it's not it's not too complicated. And I think that's what it has going for it when it is a simpler story like this. Whereas I think now that I think about it, that's probably like the we- the biggest weakness of cars too. Like I have no idea how any like seven year old kid can ex- be expected to follow what the hell is going on in that movie. Uh, it's a, it's almost hilarious <laughs> when I, th- when I think about it now, like I already pointed out to you, like some of the, the anti-fossil fuel message, but then when you actually try and unpack everything that is going on with respect to the fossil fuel and alternative fuel and all that, like I'm going to have trouble explaining it when we get back to it. So I think this movie does a good job of just at least like laying its cards on the table in a way that's not going to like, you know, make a little kid feel lost. So, and, oh, and, and that, I mean, I guess it's not a coincidence it came out. It was made in like 2005, which would have been around, uh, when Entourage was at its height and they had Jeremy Piven playing White McCoy's yeah. agent, which is also like a, which is also a nice touch at one point before he, at one point before he gives his speech at the rusty bumper after, after party, he, uh, someone just yells out <laughs> free bird, which <laughs> it's just a hilarious thing to put in a kid's movie. And then one of the other small things I found that I really liked, which, uh, that, that kind of just, uh, jumped out at that, at, in that all, all in that first part of the movie, I think that was what kind of got me in, which like, as I, this was me at the very beginning of my uh, Cars viewing experience, like 10 minutes into watching three movies of this stuff over the course of a week and a half. I was just like, it was throwing a lot at you, which I really appreciate. There's just all these different kinds of funny jokes over the first 15 minutes of this movie. And then they even have like the announcers is uh, Daryl Waltrip is voicing Daryl Cartrip, which is just mm-hmm. in a way it's yeah. like it's, it's a pun that they didn't really try with, but it's still hilarious at the same time. Mm hmm. Yeah, and like this is like one of the things about these movies too is it's it's very it's very fun when they do do it, you know. But at the same time, I'm like I'm always kind of iffy on it because like I feel like a lot of the other Pixar movies do a good job of kind of self-containing themselves and being like timeless in a sense, you know. Like you see a movie like Finding Nemo, and you're not gonna you can watch it maybe 30 years from now, and uh, mostly it's just gonna play fine, you know. Uh, maybe dentist's office will have gone undergone a huge transformation by then. But I imagine one day, like my future children will discover what cars is and they'll be like, Oh, like who's Bob Cutlass. And I'll be like, Oh, that's Bob Costas. That was an old <laughs> sports announcer. You know, <laughs> whereas, you know, like if this movie had been made 30 years ago, it would have been like Howard Carcel. And I would have <laughs> been like, dad, it's Howard Carcel. And everything. Oh, that's Howie Cassell. He was on Monday Night Football. Yeah. For, they're, they're, you know, so. your, your kids' ears are not going to in 20 years are not going to go up like mine when uh, Jeremy Piven <laughs> pops up as the agent. Uh, that was, that's a right. very specific, a very time period specific thing. And, and an ode to a movie or an ode to a TV show that the target audience for this movie would not have been allowed to watch for like at least another 10 years. <laughs> And the character that that agent sp- plays is like one of the most foul mouth TV characters of the t- of the aughts. So it is it, it is it's all sorts of weird stuff going on with the choices they made to get different people involved. Though in a way, I do kind of appreciate the weirdness. It's just like you said, not going to be necessarily timeless in a way that a lot of other Pixar movies are. Yeah, like all in all, which is a nice uh, transition to Cars too, as I say it. Um, all in all, I think this is a. Uh, you know, I think this is a. I think this is definitely the best movie of the three. You know, it has a very sweet central message, and the thing is, is like the movie knows what it wants to say, and it says it eloquently and adequately, 
and um, you know that the end scene where lightning stops right before the finish line and lets Chick Hicks blast past him and helps strip Weathers to the finish line, like you know, it's affecting. It's not um, Inside Out or Up or Toy Story levels of affecting, which you know that's almost impossible. But it successfully does what it wants to do. Well, again, and, um, no, I yeah. agree. But I, again, not much happens when they are in Radiator Springs, but. And yeah. that's why we kind of just kind of skipped over it. And so there's not a lot of plot, but I mean, do, do any of those, because they do throw a lot of characters out, at, out, they do throw a lot of characters at us as an audience. Do any of those characters really mm. pop for you in a way that really stick with you at all? Cause I'm not really sure any of them necessarily do aside from the fact that they make Mater a central focus of cars Two, as we'll discuss, but did any of the rest of them really be like, Oh wow, that really sticks with me. And I'm going to really remember this car. I'm going to really remember this other non lightning McQueen character from cars. Uh, they're all just sort of caricatures, which is fine. You know, like you have like, uh, the hippie with Sarge and you have like the, uh, he's great. I think uh, he's Luigi the one. And... <laughs> like they're all funny bit characters. They yeah. don't all need fully flashback stories. It's not a TV show, but, um, you know, I mean, they just kind of give character to the town and stuff. And I think the the actual like theme park land of Radiator Springs really benefits from that the dichotomy of some of the side characters and everything. You know, but well, I guess I did. I, I guess I did kind of zoom over Doc, who's um, obviously not around in the next two because and maybe maybe they would have maybe they would have killed him off anyway. But Paul Newman died uh, mm-hmm. at, at, between Cars and Cars Two. Paul Newman was. Honestly, like his second job was basically being a race car driver and was very into cars in real life. So that's something that's kind of like present mm-hmm. as you're watching this movie, maybe a little bit. Uh, and I guess that 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 is kind of like the big, you know, secondary character in this movie and someone that like is a, a, an ongoing presence in the next two movies like that. Do you at least mm-hmm. feel like the character work between him and McQueen is at least uh, something that's done uh, at least with some level of effectiveness? Because that's really the big bond that they try and forge aside from him and Sally, which, I mean, you can take or leave because they just kind of write Sally out of the next two movies. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a part of the movie where you definitely set up because uh, you have like the quality of performer of Paul Newman like lending. He, you know, he's there's like a little bit of heavy lifting that you have to do because you don't know a ton about Doc and Lightning learns a lot about Doc through uh, just uh, newspaper clippings and you know trophies in a warehouse and stuff. So um, yeah, you know, I mean, I think I think he's definitely good in the role and. You know, you like Doc's journey throughout the movie where he becomes his crew chief at the end. And anytime you get Paul Newman in a Pixar movie, it's a win. So, yeah. All right. Well, that's Cars. I, I agree, Joe. It's it's a it, it's a fun time. Like, I mean, I think when your storytelling ambition is as low as this movie's is, like I said, there's a ceiling on it. But there's a I still think there's enough really fun stuff in it to, like, definitely make it worth checking out, even if it. Even if it's inex- inexplicable that a Pixar movie, even a good one, would be over two hours, and this isn't one of the better ones, but it's still really good and I think worth watching, even if it's crazy that it's over two hours. Uh, Cars 2 is the 2011 sequel to Cars. It is also directed by John Lasseter, written by Ben Queen, though uh, John Lasseter and Dan Fogelman, again, both have uh, story credits on this movie, so they were still uh, pretty involved in that side of it as well. Cars 2 opens in like a disorienting way because you are not seeing any of the characters we saw from the first movie. You're seeing a British spy, uh, Finn McMissile, voiced by Mike. Michael Caine, because of course, uh, he was yeah. uh, infiltrating an oil rig owned by a uh, group of uh, not so uh, impressive looking cars, and we'll get to why that is. Uh, he's and he's on on a bit of a mission. He uh, sees them loading an electromagnetic pulse emitter, which looks like a camera, onto a shipping crate. And then he has to flee when he finds out that uh, another agent he had come to make contact with is already dead, and kind of has to get he gets chased off the uh, chased off the barge. And then we were back in Radiator Springs, where Lightning McQueen has made his home, despite the fact he is now a four-time Piston Cup champion. Uh, Doc Hudson has recently died. He thinks he's pro- Lightning probably thinks he's going to take some time off. But then an Italian Formula One or not Formula One? I don't. They don't call it Formula One. But an Italian race car driver named Francesco Bernoulli, uh, voiced by John Turturro, I believe. Uh, challenges uh, Lightning McQueen to a race in a new World Grand Prix that's led by a guy named uh, Sir Miles Axelrod, who is you know putting on this whole entire racing circuit to uh, promote his new environmentally friendly fuel, Alanol. 
And McQueen, Lightning McQueen goes with his best friend Mater, who we met in the first movie, voiced by Larry the Cable Guy, along with the rest of his crew uh, from Radiator Springs to Tokyo to, for the start of the Grand Prix. Uh, certain cars keep uh, dropping dead, and uh, w- with the help of that electromagnetic pulse transmitter, and Finn McMissile is on the scene to try and find out why, but Mater ends up kind of becoming involved with these British agents and is helping them try and track what the source of all of these mysterious car crashes are throughout the course of the movie. Uh, If that sounds confusing, that's only the half of it. Uh, (laughs) Joe, uh, you kind of hinted at it earlier, but this is uh, one where I'd say... uh, was I think you already basically said I think it's your least favorite of the three, and as, as I'm trying to talk through the plot even more, I feel like I'm kind of talking myself into agreeing with that opinion, even if I didn't really uh, leave my viewing of the three movies with like a real strong opinion as to the rankings. But you know, at the same time, we just we just kind of mentioned how oh like yeah, the storytelling ambitions of the first one are can kind of work in its favor in some ways, but also serve as a, a bit of a, a a bit of a ceiling to it being, you know, top-level Pixar. But at the same time, here is one that tries everything with the storytelling and uh, maybe not for the best. Yeah, this one is just... There's too much going on. There's just way too much going on. And uh, to the point, and especially when you think about the audience, to the point where, as I mentioned, the exposition scenes earlier... This one has a very heavy exposition scene that takes place on literally a show like Larry King. And it is just so, like, I had a hard time getting through it because basically Mater calls into this show where the Italian sports car is being interviewed. And it's just, uh, you know, if Pixar wanted a spy movie, I would have loved to see what that movie is. Um, I just think that there is a lot of clever stuff that they did. There's a lot of fun ways they could have gone with it. And instead, they decided to mash it up with uh, the Cars universe, which, okay, you know, I mean, that's something that they've done. And, now, now if they try um, and do a real spy movie, then, then we'll just have to compare it to Spies in Disguise. And that's just not going to be fair to them. So they kind of blew their shot, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's Pixar, Pixar movies do a great job of being four-quadrant. You know, they know who their audience is, and they have something for every – they, they have something for the kids. They have something for the adults. It's entertaining for the adults. It's entertaining for the kids. It's the kind of movie you need to put on for your two or five-year-olds who they're going to understand everything and have a good time. It's the good. It's a movie to put on for two 55-year-olds who are going to watch the movie and have a cathartic experience or just have a good time. This one is not made for the group of five-year-olds. There is just way too much going on. And, like, I understand it's, like, car chases and races and explosions, and that's exciting, but... I mean, if you don't really have a stake in everything that's going on, then like it's hard to care or invest in it, even at a young age. So when the movie opens, you take your kids to go see Cars 2, and the first 10 minutes of the movie is no Lightning McQueen, no Mater, and you're sitting there and you're watching this scene, which is expertly crafted and fun, and Finn McMissile is a great character, but it's just sort of one of those things where it's like, what are we doing? And I guess logically, I just can't, and this is probably more my fault than Pixar's, but I just can't wrap my head around this decision to uh, make this movie uh, the way they made it. Uh, and I'm not, you know, this comes across as bashing, obviously, which, you know, a lot of the stuff they do in this movie is like very clever and fun, but it's just like, what are you doing? I don't know. And it just seems like such a shoehorned way to, like, the way they get Mater and Lightning McQueen into this plot. It just feels so like, you know, Lightning McQueen is a four-time champion, and he uh, is going to take an off-season off. And then, like, Mater just happens to call into the race car equivalent of Larry King Live and says that Lightning McQueen is better than the Italian sports car, and this is what gets Lightning McQueen to go and to participate in this race. I don't know. And then it Mater just... ends up in the bathroom when the agents are doing their drop because he eats wasabi. And yeah, then he ends up messing up Lightning. I mean, I guess then he ends up even getting further dragged into the uh, – to the plot because he's like talking to his quote unquote date and the, mm-hmm. the whole, I mean, and then their entire friendship is thrown off because the date taps into their, you know, their radio frequency. It's yeah. There, there's just a lot of, a lot of stuff going on and it, it's, it, it's kind of convoluted. And I, I always say, 
when I'm talking about like any kind of pop culture, not even stuff like this, but just there's there's a lot of different kind of shows out there that I often mention. And I, I talked a lot about it when I did the uh, Tenet podcast with my friend Nick, because that, as anyone knows, like a lot of Christopher Nolan movies are going to be fairly dense with plot and kind of hard to follow. And I kind of brace myself for that going in with Tenet. And I think the problem, like, I, I don't think all movies have to have like a great plot necessarily, but I, if it's going to be one where I, I, a movie without a plot for me is like a great hangout movie, you know, and mm-hmm. a hangout movie where you just get to enjoy the characters. I don't want a movie where you throw a lot of things at me that feel like plot that I should be following. And then, and then have you tell me later on the plot's not that important, which isn't necessarily what they're doing here, but that's what a lot of movies do where it's like, they'll just actually throw a lot of plot mechanics at you and say, that's not the important part. Why then why do it in the first place? If you're going to make me think I need to follow a plot. So I I say that to say that like throw, throw all that crazy stuff at a little kid when I can't even 100% explain the plot of this movie to you, and it's just gonna like, it's gonna kind of just throw them off on a on a on a weird trail trying to kind of understand everything that's going on here with the different kinds of fuel and uh, and whatnot. So yeah, I, I agree. Like it, it tries to do way too much. It could have just easily because I think it is a pretty cool movie visually. Like I I do respect what they did with mm-hmm. each of these Absolutely. different race locations. That's very ambitious. Uh, specifically, I think. I mean, I I don't even want to say specifically one city. Like they clearly put a lot of work into the Tokyo, the the Italy, the France. Like I mean, it's all that's like really really impressive. It's just um, at the same time, I I, I just think that there's a way where the movie can just be more about what it, it could have picked one thing, I guess is what I'm saying. I get a kick out of the fossil fuel thing. It just feels like weird, weird <laughs> very weirdly overtly political in a way that like no one, no kid is going to really care about. And, but like, it still like takes up such a big part of the movie. And I, I kind of, I respect it going there, but again, uh, I think there's a way to make this entertaining for adults while also like, making it something kids can follow. And you probably could have like had a couple of quick jokes in there about fossil fuels that would have gotten the same message across without having to talk about it over and over again. Yeah. Like one thing about the whole fossil fuel alternative energy thing is the movie kind of undermines its own message. Like the whole principle of it is that there's this alternative fuel and they're using the race to showcase the alternative fuel. And then the solve is that the alternative fuel was actually gasoline and that, Lightning McQueen didn't blow up because he wasn't using the fake alternative fuel. He was using a organic biofuel from his <laughs> uh, hippie friend. And so I was like, okay, so we're still using gasoline, I guess. And then but it's organic, uh, which what I mean, oh, yes. it could mean anything, yeah. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and then there's this other part of the movie where like the most interesting part, and I think it happens in cars too. They mentioned something about dinosaurs or fossil fuel and it's like the first hint at like what the possible origins of the world. It's like this massive existential oh, question of any sort of, of any other of any other kind of life in the world. Right. Yeah. And then it's just sort of ignored. And I'm like, wait a second. No, like there's this big oil refinery they found. Like, where did the oil come from? You know, like, is it old decomposed cars or like dinosaurs? Di- like they, they they specifically reference dinosaurs, and the Dinoco logo is a dinosaur. So I'm just. You know, I this movie came I, out I'm before the good dinosaur, though, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to see if there's any other connection there. This, this movie is gorgeously designed. I, I know, especially you look at the scene in Italy, especially in Tokyo, too, and it, like all the locations, but Italy was the one where I just sort of was blown away by just the amazing crowd work, like the set design, just the, the human labor that went into it, that it just looks gorgeous, and um. You know, it's just I was, you know, blown away by elements of that. But yeah, just this movie, I, uh, you know. Yeah, the other other thing about it that I don't love is that I asked you about the characters in the first movie. And you said, well, yeah, it's on a TV show. You don't need to, like, fully develop them. They have their funny bits. And I think Mater probably should have stayed a bit character. Uh, Yeah. But at the same time, I I get it. Maybe he's what the kid, maybe that's for the kids. And maybe yeah. maybe they're gonna enjoy him just making funny making making funny little noises and sounds and you get more physical comedy out of him than any of the others. But your 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 no pun intended your mileage is gonna vary with a character like that. And mm-hmm. just whether or not you find him being dumb entertaining. And I only do to a point, and it's it takes up so much of the movie. I actually I do kind of enjoy the final scene. He gets 
a nice moment there when mm-hmm. he shows himself to like not be completely dumb like he is for most of the movie. But that's like takes up a lot of the movie is watching him do dumb stuff, having these American or having these um, having these British spies not literally understand him saying over and over again, yeah, I'm not a secret agent, and not understanding it's the last possible second when it's. I don't know. It, it got it got kind of old. Now I was like, if this guy was actually you know intelligent on the surface, maybe I'd get this. But it's just getting it's getting like to be an old joke after a while that has very diminishing returns. Yeah, I think there's even one point where Mater's trying to tell the secret agents that he's like not a spy and that he's like just actually like a tow truck from a small town, and then uh, Finn McMissile just sort of goes like, "Oh yeah, it's like a great cover." And I'm like, "Come on, man. this guy's great. He's staying in character." <laughs> Yeah, they literally think he's staying in character like, the whole time he's interacting with them. Yeah, I'm just I'm like, you know, the scene where they share the plane together, especially I'm just like, look, if you can't figure it out by now, then I don't know what to tell you. Like, you know, you're just sitting there. You're like, come on, you, <laughs> you know, I don't think he can make it any plainer that he's not putting on an act. He's just actually who he says he is. And um, what do you think? What do you think? Of, so what do yeah. you think of uh, the lemons being the villains? I think it's a cute idea. Um, I probably would be more receptive to it if I didn't dislike the movie around it, you know, because I thought it was pretty funny that like lemons are sort of the cars in the world that um, are looked down upon and casted aside and othered. And I get the parallel they were trying to create with Mater in that regard. And like, I thought it was funny. I thought it was one of the more clever things they did. Seems but, like um, a bit of a celebration of incel culture to me. After the uh, after the first movie was just a, a celebration of the quote unquote heartland. I think these movies are all just trying to find their own way to be super problematic. That was just a take I just came up with on the spot, but it actually works if you think about it. But don't think about it too hard. Um, okay, I, I, I'm here for it. All, all joking aside, I mean, like I, 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 as I was watching it, I actually was thinking about it more in terms of like the environmental stuff, and I was trying to figure out how much credit I was going to give John Lasseter for just you know. Um, I don't know, watching An Inconvenient Truth uh, after sometime after 2006, when I, around the time we came out, and being like, oh, we need to really do something about this. And all these old cars that give off all these emissions, like, we got to really get rid of them. So that's why he made them the villain. And I'm, I'm, I, so I'm, I'm thinking about that the whole time, and what does it even mean that we're, like, making lemons a huge plot point, and if he's trying to encourage everyone to, like, go over to this alternative fuel. But like you said, they kind of undermine it in the end by, like, having the guy that was actually, you know, supporting the alternative fuel be heavily invested in fossil fuels and just wanting to sabotage the reputation of alternative fuel not that like we're supposed to uh see that guy as the good guy but at the same time it's a little unclear it's like yo i wanted to give you some credit john lassiter for having a very environmentally progressive message here but at the same time you're muddying your message yeah and it's just like what uh, and you can't spend a movie that is designed again for adults and children talking about an alternative fuel and then just in the end be like, well, you know, it was fake. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> it doesn't exist. Uh, you know? Yeah. I just, this movie, I, I'd seen it before and then rewatching it. I just was just baffled that it, it exists. I well, somehow, cannot believe. As we discussed earlier, somehow, even though it exists, they decided another one needed to exist. So yeah. it brings us to Cars 3, which, as I said earlier, uh, I mean, I just assumed it was going to be the worst. I did not even look up these movies on Rotten Tomatoes before I uh, started this, st- started my own little uh, journey through the Cars universe. But uh, it came, uh, Cars 3 came out in 2017, uh, the, the only the second one of uh, the entire Pixar universe to uh, have a trilogy, which is wild. As Joe already mentioned earlier, it is directed mm-hmm. By Brian Fee, written by Bob Peterson, Mike Rich, Kyle Murray, and it picks up, uh, I guess, uh, sometime later when Lightning McQueen is uh, on the, later on in his uh, racing career, but still doing pretty well up until a uh, new fleet of modern type vehicles led by Jackson Storm. Uh, voiced by uh, Army Hammer, which I think is a great choice to like voice a douchey car. Uh, so oh, good, for sure, <laughs> good, good, good job on them there. I guess uh, he again he plays Jackson Storm, who is just uh, leaving everyone in the dust because he has advanced technology and special training methods, including simulators and uh, things of that nature. And Lightning McQueen gets in an accident trying to overtake him, and I guess I think what was uh one of the one of the last races of the, that piston cup season 
after you know all these other newer cars kept coming in, coming into the field and knocking out less talented cars. Uh, as he's you know uh, rehabbing in Radiator Springs, he finds out that the the bumper ointment folks have sold out to the man named Sterling, played by Nathan Fillion, and wants to give him a, a new lease on life. But he he's also kind of assigned a trainer named Cruz Ramirez. Cruz Ramirez is voiced by Cristela Alonso, and she's going to train him, and he kind of doesn't follow her training advice. Things go poorly. He has to strike a deal to even get one more race with Sterling, and having to you know find the mojo to even uh, match up well against these new-age, new rook. Uh, new, uh, uh, against these new age drivers is really the gist of the movie. And he has to go on his own journey uh, with the help of Cruz Ramirez and just figure out how to get his mojo back. And uh, I guess it's an ode to a lot of other sports movies. Uh, there's, you know, training montages going back to find the old people. I, and for me, it echoed some of the, ro- the mid Rocky movies a little bit and that kind of thing. Joe, what do you think the biggest thing is that this movie got right that, uh, and, and helping it return the, the series return to form a little bit after that crazy departure we just discussed in cars Two? I think the successful thing about cars three is that I remembered it was part of a series and hmm. that it actually looked to cars before uh, writing its story, you know, and it kind of draws a through line. You know, you go to the original cars, like Lightning McQueen's the hotshot rookie and Strip the King Weathers is the old uh, the old hat. And uh, Strip is sort of fighting to hang on and win another Piston Cup, and Lightning McQueen is the new challenger. And you see those roles, like, flipped in this new one where Lightning McQueen is suddenly the old hand and... Uh, you know, he has to really reckon with, you know, how to get his one last shot at glory. Because one of the big things in Cars, obviously, was Doc Hudson had the big crash and he wasn't welcome back after his crash. And then Lightning McQueen had a crash and is sort of trying to fight his way back so he doesn't become another Hudson Hornet. And, you know, like, I just remember this movie, although I wasn't particularly excited about it, I remember the teaser trailer was of the McQueen crash. Hmm. And, it was the teaser trailer that killed Lightning McQueen. And I just remember there was this big online backlash where kids were upset all over because the trailer showed McQueen in anguish. And it really, uh, I was like, wow, okay. Like they're going to kind of go for it here. And in a lot of ways they do, which is sort of refreshing, you know, like, uh, to spoil the end of it here, like McQueen ends up not, you know, winning the race himself. Like he, has to like tag out and tag Cruz Ramirez in to win the race. And it's one of those things where it's very much about accepting, you know, when your time is up and it's time to pass the torch. And, uh, in a lot of ways, I thought that was pretty poignant considering the places this franchise had gone previously. And, um, yeah, I think having a through line from the first one and actually exploring, you know, lightning admiring doc Hudson, and then going to a place where he's now having to, uh, be in his boots or be in his tires or whatever you want to call it. You know, I just, I think it's the natural choice for continuing the story as opposed to um, going to Japan and Italy. <laughs> as pretty as those places were. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah I, I guess I don't actually have a ton to say about the middle of this movie. I, I saw I'll just go to the end too, and we can make whatever other points we want to make about the movie. But I think the ending is like really impressive. For one, even though you kind of see it coming, it's a pretty, it's a pretty kick-ass move that you know the doc Hudson originally did that then uh cruz also does too like you know being up against the wall and flipping yeah. over like that's so while we've already seen so many different types of races through the first two movies and uh just a lot of different types of tracks and stuff like that so n- nothing of that ilk was really gonna blow us uh, uh, blow our minds even though that it looked like a cool track that was on the water in florida i don't really know if the actual florida motor speedway is you know uh, situated as such or Doral or wherever, wherever they actually race in Florida. But I, having actual cool, like racing mechanics or racing tricks is something that is, uh, unique in a different way aside from the, you know, turn right to go left or whatever, uh, which we'd already seen a lot by that point. So that is cool. But also just the choice that, uh, Lightning McQueen makes. I mean, when we met him in the first movie, as you said, this movie, you remembered it was a series. We meet him in the first movie and he is so selfish that he's already like gone through three different pit crews or something in his rookie season. And is just like a kind of a selfish jerk. And here he like makes the ultimate selfless act, but at the same time, it's not even just that he, I mean, you know, I, I think in a way he could have like, you know, propped Cruz up at the end 
still they could have like tried to have their cake and eat it too i guess and had him win the race and do the traditional satisfying ending or something like that but in that having him like make that sacrifice i think it's actually you know it's kind of a i don't know if I don't know if female empowerment's the right word, but it didn't just like, I thought it was a cool way to split the baby, I guess. And that like, as opposed to just like having him win and then having to have their cake and needed to, or having her just like jump in on her own in some way and win the race. It would have been like, Oh, girls can, you know, do it too on their own. I think it was like an interesting reminder that it's like, uh, yeah, no, you probably like, you know, I feel weird like calling cars females, but like, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're not necessarily going to like, you know, achieve gender equality or female empowerment. Isn't just like women taking matters in their own hands. Like, you know, in order to like help women be on like more of an equal playing field, like men are going to have to sacrifice too. And they need to actually like recognize mm-hmm. that it's on them to like, you know, be an ally, be and do something and do something that'll actually like make a difference on their own, as opposed to just like saying, yeah, I'm, the women should have equal rights like you actually have to do something and actually actively kind of help their cause or something and it's kind of cool to like see them put that message forth as opposed to just having lightning mcqueen get his but also help her i don't think it's as strong of a message that way and i i I just kind of i I was happy with the way they told their story at that point yeah absolutely and i think the other thing too is you know in cars too you have the uh the female secret agent car and she ends up actually becoming mater's girlfriend and in this one, yeah, like they don't even do the, yeah, they don't even do the romance thing in this one. Like Cruz Ramirez really has like her own like journey. Like, yeah, thank God. I thought they were going to do some weird, like I, has. knowing it wasn't good. I thought they were going to try and do some weird love triangle thing with Sally or something. And I was like, I do not want this movie uh, to go there. Yeah. But knowing what, what I'd heard about it, I was like kind of bracing myself for it to go there. Cause I just didn't think it was going to be a good movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I would say with this movie too, like they take a, they take a few pages from the first one too, where, the action sequences in this movie are pretty great. Like you have like the the sort of monster truck rally with the flame throwing school bus, which is a really cool chaotic scene. Like you have like your racing scenes where you know the Lightning McQueen crash is incredible. Like it's one of the more uh, visually arresting things Pixar's ever done. Like it, you know the Cruz Ramirez flip at the end, which is a really cool sequence. You know I think they remembered a lot about what worked about the first one both in the emotional heartfelt stuff as well as like just people want to see if you're gonna make a race car movie like show us cool racing scenes you know and i really think they pulled that off certainly and yeah i really like the demolition derby scene from like a it was so chaotic and yeah and like in in a very impressive way where like i yeah it might not have made sense to any of us but you know that they had to have like great technical command of what they were doing as animators and storytellers Mm -hmm. and great attention to detail to even make the scene work as much as it does even if you can't exactly tell what's going on at the same time because it's supposed to be very chaotic but i think they actually have to probably choreograph that very specifically in order to pull that off and I, I i like thinking about that in the context of that universe too i feel like if the equivalent of that happened in like a sport today you know i i feel like i, I don't know i, I kind of thought that like in sterling does kind of spin it in a way to the press and I, I guess he actually wasn't that mad himself necessarily I, uh, lightning mcqueen was more embarrassed he thought it was a bad look for him and i was like oh no someone that seems like they're the same kind of business savvy as this uh as this Sterling guy's supposed to be is going to like sell this as like, and use it as like guerrilla marketing, which is what I kind of thought it would be. It'd be, you know, if like, uh, a, like a majorly, uh, like a, or like an NBA player just like showed up at like a street game somewhere in the middle of nowhere and dominated, that'd be like a cool story that would like, you know, oh, go, yeah. go viral. And I, I, I kind of thought the same thing. And McQueen was just kind of like a dick about it, but he kind of ends up, that, that ends up being kind of the lesson that he has to learn and, uh, in, in treating crews better. Yeah, absolutely. And, the whole like you're not a racer thing and i'm sure this was intentional on their part but you know it's very clear like when she's a trainer at the facility all the cars she's training are men you know and their various mm-hmm. insecurities and like lightning queen's a man car <laughs> like you said earlier the female versus male in their cars and especially this first two movies are just all the racers are guys and stuff and so to have her like be put in a box like you're just a trainer you're just a trainer and then her to finally make that journey i think that is, you know, important, especially but, in Pixar, which is a studio that is largely dominated by male protagonists. Yeah, as well. but, but when they uh, when they go meet the uh, the old racers because they want to go, f- they need they they have to find some other kind of help uh, at some point because they can't just uh, right. they can't for Lightning McQueen's incapable of just using the regular training equipment because he skips to the simulator too fast and 
they never really mm-hmm. consider going back to it. Uh, fine, but they they figure we need we need something else. We need to go talk to the old folks that Doc used to hang out with. There's actually a, there's actually a, a female car within them, which is interesting. And she does talk a yeah. little bit about her, the problems she's had, but at the same time, it's like wasn't like it doesn't seem like that car broke a barrier that uh, that it broke a seal glass ceiling or whatever that a lot of other female cars went through it hadn't really been any others on the scene till you know Cruz makes her big uh, appearance in the final act but I I, I don't know I, I I did kind of enjoy going back and uh watching those watching them interact with those old cars because I almost kind of expected them to just be like grumpy and be like oh no get out of here I'm just like conditioned yeah. to think that when someone shows up to a desolate place like that to to ask someone for a favor but uh they were actually pretty open and that was uh I don't know. That was that was a fun sequence in the movie where they kind of just got to to reminisce, but also you know find uh, make new friends that were gonna that were gonna help them. Yeah, definitely added to the world and the history, and I think it kind of does a good job of kind of giving Lightning McQueen like a glimpse into like what his future is. You know, like that he's being welcomed into this brotherhood sisterhood of like these old vets and stuff, and what they can offer, and it's sort of a nice like. Uh, introduction to that life for him and um i did want to say too that breaking the glass ceiling in the cars world is called busting through the sunroof oh uh, there you so, go <laughs> like, no I, i'm i'm just i'm that was a bad joke but you know like oh. <laughs> i know i know jack shit about racing so i i, I, I me not picking up on your joke is more of me assuming it was a racing term i didn't know as opposed to your joke not being funny um uh, <laughs> uh but yeah, yeah. I didn't have I didn't have a lot of other thoughts on the movie. I had like two other bullet points on my uh, just on my notes. One of them was that I, I I laughed when he was repeating the name of the simulator and he goes, "Wow, XDL, etc." Instead of actually like saying the, yeah. the rest of the name of it, I thought that was funny. And also, I was wondering like when yeah. they they train on the um, the beach, which is like a direct callback to Rocky Three, if you ask me. They he gets really upset when he's only going one ninety eight. But I feel like going 198 miles an hour on beach, on beach sand, is probably like just as impressive as going like 208 miles an hour on an actual race car track. There was just a thing I thought. I'm glad moment. you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up because like it feels like that would translate to asphalt. Like if you're going 198 on sand, especially like right there at the shoreline, like because like the whole scene is like, oh, you got to ease into it so your tires can gain traction and. You know, it's like harder to walk on sand than it is to walk on regular pavement. So, like, yeah, right. and, and that was a weird thing for me to get hung up on. But like, I assume that like they would kind of acknowledge the fact that like it's probably a lot harder to drive a car on sand, and just as it is to mm-hmm. run on sand. Oh, and one more thing about that scene: mm-hmm. it has the beach scene where they work out on the beach is one of the most jarring movie scenes I've ever seen because the way the beach setting is rendered, it's so photorealist that you see these cartoony cars on it that it's just legitimately like uh disorienting well, for I, me. I, like if you I actually like, had well I actually had the same thought but on the when he when he race when he goes and races on Doc's home track. Like I that 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 looked oh, yeah. like real like a real dirt track with like an animated car driving on it in a way that like it didn't feel like that in the first movie when he's uh when he's racing on dirt with doc watching for the first time or something like that like that felt more animated whereas like it felt like like you said it felt very photorealistic when i i, I don't know i i didn't exactly have that sensation on the beach i had it on the uh, at doc's home track but that i guess it i guess it happens a couple different times where they just went to a different place with their animation in a way that i didn't think was bad but i was like oh that's just that, that's it's kind of bizarre and then i had one final point about this movie and that Basically, Cars Three is the anti Moneyball. Like you know, like oh, every for sure. I was bit, gonna make that point. Yeah, <laughs> every bit about this movie, every bit about this movie is like anti analytics to the point where they name Carrie Washington's like analyst character character Natalie Certain, <laughs> and then <laughs> she, and then they undermine her at the end where you know, but you know, at the same time, you know, she she said there was only a ninety eight point four percent chance chance that jackson storm would win so the 1.6 bore out in that scenario but yeah these um, movies are very progressive in some ways and very uh anti uh forward thinking movements in other ways you know yeah you know it's just like you know analytics they're not bad you know like just saying like cars three is fighting the good fight for the rbis crowd you know i mean well, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the A's never even made it to a World Series under Billy Bean. So, uh, yeah, 
you know, maybe these guys got a point and we just got to start, you know, actually acknowledging the pitcher win again. I don't know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no pitcher wins are bad. I'm kidding. Uh, yes, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like Joe's kind of talked me into it. I, again, I was still entertained by all these movies, even as I can acknowledge the, I guess many more limitations of cars Two than I, uh, probably even picked up on when I first read it. But I think, uh, I guess I definitely think if you're like me and for whatever reason you just put off watching the Cars movies, uh, then I think this is a pretty good use of your time. And I, I doubt anyone's still listening that hasn't watched them, I guess. But I, again, as I often say if, to anyone that's made it to this point in the podcast on something like this, I'd, I'd say to urge anyone that like likes most of the other Pixar movies like I do to watch this one. Like You're going to get enough out of it, even if it's, yeah, it's not going to be, none of them are going to be your favorite Cars movies. Uh, do you have any other parting thoughts on the Cars series, Joe? Uh, if you are still listening and you haven't watched any of the Cars movies, bless you. And um, <laughs> also, feel free to skip two. You can go one to three and it just won't even matter. There you, you know? go. Like, it'll just seamlessly transition. Just don't even worry about it. Good pull. Good call. Uh, Joe, anything else you've been watching recently you want to plug to the listeners? I know you've been in a little bit of a movie funk, but uh, anything, you, and you can pass this this round if you want to, but any other TV or movies you've enjoyed recently you want to direct people to? Uh, I've been re-watching The West Wing. Uh, I watched it all in college, so it's been about eight, nine years. Mm-hmm. And um, to sort of rewatch it now through the lens of, what the Obama presidency was like and then what, you know, the Trump era was like, it's sort of interesting just to see like what people thought about politics in the nineties and early aughts. And, uh, okay. Know, so sort of, I, I guess you're a good person to ask this question too. I mean, given that I think we're fairly politically aligned, my mom tried to watch, tried to pitch me on rewatching the West wing a few weeks ago. I think she'd forgotten that I watched most of it when I was like in, you know, middle school and high school with my, with my parents, like they used to watch it pretty religiously every week and I would join them a lot. I was very into like, you know, presidents and history and stuff like that. And, uh, so I enjoyed it then, but, but, but I, I, I had been kind of staying away just because I thought, you know, we might have even talked about, oh, no, I think I talked about this offline with a couple of our other regular guests, but, you know, Aaron Sorkin's the guy that recently said if he could, uh, write the end of the Trump presidency, the Republicans would grow a spine and walk up to him and say, Mr. President, we've had <laughs> enough. So with someone with like that kind of like idealism writing about the world and, a that this so clearly doesn't exist today. I don't know if I would just be like too distracted by the fact that like reasonable Republicans and Democrats just need to like get along, like as if that's a thing that could actually happen. It's like a, a common thing in the West wing where it's like, this is just like politics are very normal. And I didn't know if it would be like, be like distracting to go to a place like that or a nice escape. And I just couldn't decide. And it made it harder for me to take the plunge. Yeah. The idealism is a double-edged sword. Like there's, there's the one aspect of it where it's like, you know, it's good to see people who care about public service and are trying to make the world a better place. And it's inspiring in that sense. And then there's the other end of it where, you know, you're like, um, Mitch McConnell is a person who exists and he (laughs) is just making governing literally impossible for anybody. And, um, you know, Mitch McConnell would never appear on the West wing as a character, even because even like the, the hard ass, uh, speaker of the house, um, in season five of the West wing, which is what I'm currently on ends up coming to like a truce with Bartlett, uh, president Bartlett on something. Mm. So it's just like one of those things where it's like, uh, yeah. So it's definitely like, it's definitely a fantasy for sure. Um, especially given our modern politics. So, um, as long as you have that in mind, it's, it's worth revisiting, but yeah, maybe I'll go into it. Maybe I, maybe I'll give it a shot again. Cause I, I just finished justified and I could, you know, if we're going to have this time where like there's not going to be a lot of the new awards movies coming out at a time of the year where we would normally have them, maybe I'll have a bit of gap in my schedule to like try and make one more big time commitment, though I've been telling myself I'd I'd rewatch all the Sopranos before the Sopranos movie comes out at some point next year. So we'll, we'll see how I end up allocating my time. But you made me convince me to maybe, you know, give the West Wing a, <laughs> another shot because it's been even longer. Like you said, it's been college for you. It's been since high school for me. Uh, so oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm sure I would, uh, I, I might get something out of it. Uh, if I'm going to make one uh, recommendation, it'll be another Paul Newman, uh, vehicle, no pun intended, but the, the hustler, it's a, uh, 19, it's a 1961 movie starring Paul Newman as Eddie Felson, who is a literally a, a pool hustler. And he, uh, he loses, loses really big in a match at the beginning and kind of has to 
build himself back up and he's you know has a uh, has a girlfriend that ends up playing a big part in his life but he ends up taking uh taking help from another character who he's not really sure if he should trust but he's kind of down on his options and he has to kind of uh in a way try and build himself back up in in a way where he can you know face his challenges but it's a guy it's it's clearly about a guy with like addiction issues as well all at the same time and it's a uh it's it's impressive in all it try in all it's able to handle and i think it's less than two hour runtime but uh it's also notable because uh he he reprised the role in 1986 for the color of money and ended up winning best actor with in a leading role uh, for, for that, which was also a Tom, it was a Tom Cruise movie at the same time, which I have also not seen. But as of the time we're recording this, the day before Thanksgiving, and I'm going to post the episode, I think on Thanksgiving or the day after, uh, the color of money is on Amazon prime for like three more days. So if that seems like something that you would actually be interested in, cause I mean, not necessarily a huge pool player myself, but the hustler is like a well-received movie that I really enjoyed and is like actually really entertaining and just literally watching guys go back and forth and play full pool and probably more entertaining than it has any right to be and just watching this guy go through a bit of a <laughs> breakdown on his own, trying to fight his demons with respect to his, uh, gambling addiction and maybe somewhat of an alcohol addiction as well. And, uh, in a bit of a toxic relationship at the same time, it just doesn't seem like it should be a pleasant time, but I think the movie is a much easier watch than I expected, especially if you had told me that those were its plot points. So I recommend the hustler. And then I can't recommend the color of money yet. Cause I'm going to watch it. Uh, um, but I had, I had to, I had, I had, I had a duty to do first. I had to watch cars, the next two cars movies after I watched the hustler. <laughs> uh, so I got those out of the way and then I'll go watch, uh, uh, I'll watch the color of money. So, uh, but yeah, uh, Joe, before we sign off anything, uh, you want to plug for the listeners? Uh, the hustler it's shorter than cars there there, there you go uh, <laughs> uh as usual you can find me on twitter at josh chernovoy j-o-s-h-j-u-r-n-o-v-o-y and on letterbox same thing podcast twitter is at rewind movie pod podcast gmail the rewind movie pod at gmail.com coming up next week i'm we might do something on uh hulu's happiest season uh we'll be doing something on mank which i think comes out a week later just haven't really figured out the order of all that. I think Joe's going to be coming back at the end of December to talk with us about Soul. So I'm excited about that. So thanks again to Joe for joining us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.